You know, I saw, I don't know how long ago it was, I don't know where I saw it on TV or something, um, one of these shows where they do pranks. You like these prank shows? They, they hide cameras and they pull pranks on people. Uh, I think it's funny when I'm not the subject, um, as you might also. Um, they had one in particular where what they did is they brought these uh, job applicants in for a job interview. And so the job applicants came in, they sat, and the boss was behind the desk. And behind the boss was this uh, giant picture window showing the city behind him. They were in a high-rise uh, building. And, uh, and unbeknownst to the job applicants, it wasn't a window. It was actually a high-definition television screen that they had put an image of the outside, a video image. And then as the job interview was going on, disaster strikes the city outside the window. Like meteors are hitting and a giant explosion, the city is being destroyed. And of course, they make it so in the office the lights flicker and they go out. And, and uh, people re- react as you might expect. They freak out and they, they jump under the table and they get very scared. And it's hilarious to watch people panic for their very lives. I don't know why that's funny, but it is. Um, Another one that I thought was kind of clever, uh, they t- did the same thing. They took these giant flat panel televisions and they put them in the bottom of an elevator facing up. And so you're standing on the elevator and then the elevator would flicker the lights and shake a little bit. And then the t- televisions would change from the picture of a floor of an elevator to an empty elevator shaft. And so you'd be standing and, and it was amazing. You see, what do people do when that happens? They suddenly grab the, the rails and they jump to the side and their fear uh, makes them react, makes them uh, freak out. Uh, so I wanted to ask you this question in, in light of that. Here's a question. Seriously, I want you to consider it. Um, what do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're afraid? If you're in an elevator and the floor drops out, you grab the handrail, don't you? But we, we have all kinds of fears that we face on a routine, maybe even daily basis. And and the question is, I don't know if you ever thought of it, what do you do when you're afraid? What's your knee-jerk reaction? What are some of the things you notice when you get afraid? Do you get irritable? Do you get angry? Do you get uh, quiet? Do you uh, remove yourself into a, a solitude and try and get away from everybody? Maybe you're a, a, an active person. You say, well, I'm afraid and I want to deal with it, so I fix it. What's, what's the problem? Let's knock it out. Let's get it done. I, I don't like being afraid. So I'm going to fix this situation. What do you do, though? Maybe you can answer this in your own mind or even write it down. What do you do when you're afraid? As we go through 1 Samuel chapter 22 and 23, we're going to really contrast both Saul and David. Both of them in this section of Scripture are afraid. And we're going to contrast and look at the differences in how they approach it and see if we can discern something about the Lord through it, and I think it's really important what we'll think about. So if you want to, turn with me over to 1 Samuel 22, and we're going to begin in in verse 6. I don't know if you remember where we're at in 1 Samuel. David has fled for his life. He didn't have any supplies or weapons, and so last time we were together in 1 Samuel 21, he had stopped by the uh, priest at uh, the city of Nob, and he had gotten some bread, and he had received Goliath's sword, And he had been equipped and uh, supplied, and so he and his men left. And now, here in uh, chapter 22, verse 6, Saul is holding court under a tree, it says. Saul had heard that David, of course, was discovered. He knew that he had fled. 
Saul, with his spear in his hand, was under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah. Gibeah was the capital where Saul operated. It was very normal for a king to hold court under an important tree. This isn't because Saul was broke. This was normal. And he was sitting under a tamarisk tree, and he was holding court with his court officials. And this is what he says to his officials. Look with me at verse 7 of 1 Samuel 22. Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give, you all, uh, give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commander of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Saul is afraid. King Saul is afraid because David has escaped. And David is a significant threat to Saul's rule in Israel. What do you do when you're afraid? When Saul was afraid, Saul pursued confidence by pursuing his threats. What do you do when you're afraid? When Saul was afraid, though, this is what he did. Saul, we're going to see, pursues confidence by pursuing his threats. He doesn't like feeling afraid. Who likes feeling afraid? He wants to feel confident and assured. And he's going to gain his confidence by pursuing and eliminating the threats that are facing him. So sitting on a tamarisk tree, he looks at all his court officials that he feels are conspiring against him. And he says, listen, when David's king, is he going to give you the vineyards I've given you? Is he going to put you in command of the military units I've put you in command of? In a very veiled threat, not so veiled threat, perhaps saying, listen, when David is king, you'll be broken powerless. When I am king, you will be well-fed and uh, well-provisioned and have power and influence. Are you sure you want to do me in? You take me out, you take yourselves out. He threatens those who might conspire against him. He's appealing to their sense of money and their sense of power, and they all seem to sit there sort of quiet. And he says, What's, what are you going to do about it? What's going to happen? Who is, who is inciting David against me? And they all sort of don't want to get involved. Saul could be a little bit unhinged, if you remember. Look with me at verse 9. Doeg the Edomite, he was standing there. Do you remember the last time we saw Doeg the Edomite? When David went to Ahimelech the priest at Nob and got the bread and the sword, the Bible says Doeg was there. And he saw and now Doeg is in the court of King Saul, and Doeg says, Listen, I saw David come up to Ahimelech, the priest, at Nob. You'll never believe this, Saul, but the priest inquired of the Lord for your enemy, David. David went to the priest and asked for the Lord's leading, and the priest, if you can believe it, Saul, provided your enemy with information from God himself. The king was upset. Could you imagine? The priest now. The priest now seems to be against the king. The king sends for the priest. He doesn't just send for the priest. He sends for his whole family. 
says, come to the king. That's a scary proposition. And so he's called before the king, and this is what the king says to the priest. Why have you conspired against me? Why have you given Jesse information, Why, the son of Jesse information? Why have you given him bread? Why have you given him a sword? And Ahimelech says, what are you talking about, man? He doesn't say it quite like that. It's very, very similar in the Hebrew. What are you talking about? Who is more faithful to you than David, Saul? I mean, when David shows up, it's as though you show up. Saul, David's your main guy. He fights your battles. He stands in for you. What, why would I have any reason not to... Why would I have any reason not to help your main guy, David, king? Doesn't that seem reasonable? Now, being reasonable with King Saul was a ridiculous proposition. King Saul said it very quickly. You will die, you and your whole family. King Saul turns to his guards standing next to him and says, kill the priest and his family. And what did they do? They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Saul's personal bodyguard wouldn't kill the Lord's priest. Doeg the Edomite would. The Doeg the Edomite was happy to kill the priest. He's an Edomite. He has no qualms over killing the priesthood. He has no concerns over the religious ramifications. So Doeg the Edomite, this is down in verse 18, he turned and struck them down that day, killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, 85 men who served the Lord in his tabernacle. He didn't stop there. He also put to the sword the entire city of Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, its women, its children, its infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. And then he went through and stepped on all the cockroaches. He killed it all. Saul's appeal to his officials for money and influence and power didn't appeal to them as much, it seems like, but to Doeg the Edomite, he had just written his golden ticket. Doeg incited the fear that Saul already had by, by digging into Saul's insecurities and saying, Saul, not only are these guys against you, the priest is against you. Boy, you'd better deal with this, buddy. And then he takes his opportunity and massacres the priesthood with only one of the priests, Abiathar, escaping. What does Saul do when he is afraid? He pursues confidence by pursuing his threats and eliminating his threats and thinking he's going to find confidence once his threats are eliminated. There's three things I want you to see here about Saul. Just point them out real quick. Number one, Saul is king. And as king, he had a responsibility. His primary responsibility as king of Israel was very, very simple. To lead the people of Israel into deeper and deeper relationship with God based on the covenant of the Mosaic law. His, his primary job as king was to make sure the people of Israel sought the, lo, sought the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they, and they pursued him in covenant with God. Really, one of the primary roles of the king was to help the people get so close to God they didn't need a king anymore. Saul had abandoned his primary role as king to lead the people toward God. And instead was trying to lead people to himself. 
Saul was, was abandoning. He didn't want to pe- lead people to, to God. He wanted to establish himself as a king that could not be supplanted. What do the people need more, a good king or the holy God? Holy God. And King Saul didn't want to lead them to him. If he had, he wouldn't have had the entire priesthood at Nob massacred by an Edomite. Maybe we should just touch real quick. Who are the Edomites? They're the descendants of Esau. And throughout the Old Testament, the Edomites have traditionally been at odds with the people of Israel. Saul abandoned his identity as king, which was to lead the people to God, and instead was trying to lead people to his own strength. Second, Paul depended on... Did I say Paul? It's terrible. Every time I say Paul, you can just cut and paste, put Saul in there. Paul... It's ridiculous. (laughs) Saul depended on strategy and intelligence instead of depending on God's knowledge. Saul depended on strategy and intelligence. We're going to see this all the way through. We're not going to have a chance to go through it in detail. All the way through chapter 22 and chapter 23, Saul is working his intelligence networks intently to gather all the information he can so he can make really, really good decisions, is what it says over in Isaiah 55. I'm going to start in uh, verse 6, Isaiah 55, verse 6. Of course, this was written after King Saul, but he should have known the concept of this anyway. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will pardon. Verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The prophet would remind us here that God knows a little bit more than we do. King Saul did not pursue God's ways and God's purposes primarily because he had it dialed in. Who was smarter than King Saul? He had an intelligence network that covered the entire uh, countryside, and he knew everything he needed to know. He knew on a daily basis where David was. People were feeding him information. And so I've got all the good information. I've got good advisors. I'm a smart guy. I'm going to rely on my strategy and my intelligence What could God possibly know that I don't already know? He depended on his own strategy and intelligence instead of on God's knowledge and God's purposes. It just might be that God has a few more pieces of information than we do. Paul didn't think God brought anything to the table. Paul, I hope that's not... Saul didn't think God brought anything to the table in terms of intelligence. He had everything he needed. Saul abandoned his identity as a king. Instead of leading people to God, he wanted to lead people to himself. He depended on his own strategy and intelligence. And finally, he sought personal gain through disobedience. These are all things uh, Saul did when he was afraid. He, he sought personal gain through disobedience. I want to remind you of an event back in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. 
God, through the prophet Samuel, had told King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Do you remember that? How'd Saul do on that? Fair-ish. You know, it's one of those things, wipe out the Amalekites. It's not something you can sort of do. Either it's done or it's not done, uh, you know. Uh, and, and Saul uh, wiped out most of the Amalekites. He just kept all of the really valuable plunder, and he kept the king of the Amalekites alive. And so what happened was his men kept the plunder, he kept the plunder, and I've lost my, uh, my here it is, 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, after keeping the king alive and after hearing the judgment of God, I have sinned, I have violated your Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I, I gave in to them, and we kept some of the plunder. And how Samuel described his sin, he said, Saul, why did you pounce on the plunder? Saul routinely disobeyed the Lord to advance his own agenda. He, he wanted to gain personally through his disobedience. He disobeyed the Lord and didn't wipe out the Amalekites because it wasn't in his interests. What did he do to the priests at Nob? He did exactly what he should have done to the Amalekites. Isn't that unbelievable? The Amalekites, the enemy of Israel, because it didn't serve his purposes, he kept some of them, al them alive and he kept some of the best stuff that they had to offer. The priests at Nob, because their existence did not uh, fit his purposes and his agenda, he wiped them out exactly as he should have done to the Amalekites. He pounced on the plunder, the opportunity to eliminate a threat by destroying the priesthood. When Saul was afraid, he sought personal gain through his disobedience. And, and however he might have decided that was okay, he might have justified that in a million different ways. In his fear, King Saul abandoned God. Thought the best way to navigate through a tough situation was to be smart. And the best outcome for him was to not lose the, 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 the throne and, and to gain as much support as he could from his followers. Maybe I could put it this way. This is a silly way to put it, but I'll put it this way. He sought confidence in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways. He sought confidence, not where God is, but where God wasn't. And not through God's means, but through his own means. He wanted to have confidence in the fact that his job was secure and that he would remain king and that the people wouldn't conspire against him. And he sought to gain the confidence by eliminating his threats. And he, he didn't have any more confidence before the event, after the event than he did before. When King Saul was afraid, he pursued confidence by pursuing his threats and eliminating them. He abandoned God, he sought intelligence, and looked for ways to avoid losing his stuff and his throne. He sought confidence in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways. And before we move on to David, just a quick thought on that. I don't know if that's ever been sort of your testimony as well. And if it's not yours, certainly, maybe it's somebody you know well, right? Maybe, maybe things are getting a little sideways on you at jo at the, on the job. Certainly none of us, right? Bosses all over you. All kinds of heat. They're going to be cutting back. They're only going to keep the, the big hitters. All of a sudden... 
the accuracy of a report that turns in, you, I don't know. What's more important, the accuracy of this report or being a heavy hitter? I mean, if I come in second to Joe Schmo over there, he's going to keep his job, I'm going to lose my job. Where, where am I going to find my confidence if I don't have a job? I've got I to gotta have a job to have confidence. And in order to have a, have a job, I've got to be doing well. And, and in order to do well right now, I don't know why I'm in this, in this pickle, but in order to do well, I've got to fudge the numbers. I, want, I know that's not anybody here, certainly, but l- let's just say for conversation you've had an experience similar to that. Have you ever got to the end of that where you've done that and you've fudged it and you said, and you said what, what am I doing? Maybe you've said this phrase after you've made a decision to eliminate fear by, by lying or other means, by uh, making yourself look good in a, in a particular way. Or Maybe you've said this before, and that's not me. Where did that come from? I can't, I can't believe I did that. That's not like me. That's not who I am. I mean, this is precisely where King Saul found himself. He, he's not acting kingly because he's pursuing confidence in all the wrong places. Why do we have to have confidence by having a job? I know that's a ridiculous thing to say, isn't it? Some of you have been around a little bit longer than I am. You know, jobs, as it turns out, come and go, don't they? If if our confidence is in our employability, we're not going to have a lot of confidence. If our confidence is in our ability to look good, we're not going to have a lot of confidence. Speaking of looking good, Maybe you have uh, social media of some kind, the FaceTime or the Snap-in. What is it? I'm kidding. I'm trying to act like I don't know what they are. The Twitter machine. A couple of things we're discovering about Twitter that, or uh, social media. More Number one, uh, parents cover your teens' ears. A, a fact, documented fact, social media makes teens depressed. It's not like we think maybe all the teens in the room are getting ready to walk out. It's not like maybe, maybe it makes them, it it just, that's a fact. Why is this the case? It turns out we're not putting our bad days on Facebook. Woke up on the wrong side of the bed. The baby had come in in the middle of the night. The baby had taken his diaper off. Anybody been there? That is the wrong side of the bed. That's not on Facebook. We want to be perceived well. My confidence is in the fact that the people out there, most of whom I I haven't had contact with in decades, that they might perceive me well. I want to have a good reputation. One of the jokes we make when we see pictures of different people put it up, and now none of you are going to all unfriend me on Facebook. You see the picture, and this is only true because I have a family, as it turns out. You see a picture of a family, and we go, how long did that one take? (laughs) You know what I mean? How long? Look, the kids are smiling. 30 seconds before that, they were punching each other's face. One kid had a shiv he had made from a spoon. (laughs) But I want want the reputation to be, our family sits around just smiling at one another. And in order to do that, I'm going to make sure all my relationships occur online. They're at arm's length. I don't let anybody know me with the warts and the wrinkles and the fears and the anxieties and the insecurities and the uh, sins 
I want to make sure everybody only knows this perception of me that I might present publicly. Because what, I'm, I'm afraid if they knew me, they wouldn't want me. And so to pursue confidence instead of having real relationships in real time with real people who have to deal with the real stuff of life, I'm going to keep everybody at arm's length. And all of a sudden we feel isolated and alone, or as I referred to earlier, depressed. And we say, this isn't me. I used to hang out with people. I used to have friends we spent time with, and we didn't have to be perfect. What do we do when we're afraid? Saul abandoned who he was. He, he sought his own ways, and he ensured he didn't lose anything. And the end result was less confidence than he ever had before. Fear made stop Saul stop acting kingly. Chapter 23, 1 Samuel, chapter 23. David is hiding in a forest with his 400 men. I'm sure little John was with them. They're basically on the run. They're hiding in a forest. They had found a stronghold in Moab that they could hold up in, and the prophet uh, came to him and said, you don't get to stay in a stronghold. Go, go back to Judah. And so David now, because of the command of the Lord, is hiding with his men in the forest. And all of a sudden, David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah. And they're looting the threshing floors. David was told that a city of Israel was under attack. Who is David? He is the anointed king of Israel hiding in the woods. But when a king hears that one of his cities is under attack, what does the king do? He acts kingly. David, when he's afraid, listen, he doesn't do what Saul did, which pursued confidence by pursuing his threats. David pursues confidence by pursuing God. David, when afraid, pursued confidence by pursuing God. Look what happened here in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 23. David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah, and they are looting the threshing floors. Verse 2, he inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? What did he do? Knee-jerk reaction. I need to know what the Lord wants. I will pursue the Lord in my fear. David wasn't going to the Lord because he was bold and confident, and he wasn't afraid of anything. He was going to the Lord because he was afraid, and because his men were afraid. The Lord said, go, attack the Philistines, save Calah. So David went to the men. Hey, guys, guess what? The city is under attack. No big deal. We're going to go ahead and conquer the Philistines. Don't worry about it. I prayed about it. Now, the guys, a bunch of spiritual giants, right? Remember, who are these guys? The indebted, the disenfranchised, the, all, the, all the worst. The rabble had come to David. And, and David's men said to him, uh, we hate to point this out, David, um, we're in Judah, we're already afraid. That's what it says, verse 3. David's men said to him, here, in Judah, we are what? Afraid. How much more than if we go to Kayla against the Philistines? Listen, we're already afraid. It's going to get worse if we go there. Interesting here, unlike Saul, 
who in his fear pursued to control through power and influence. David here doesn't do that. He doesn't beat his men up. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't threaten their lives. What does he do? So David went to the Lord again, and the Lord said, no, you got to go. And David went to his men and said, we're going to go. And what does men say? Let's go. David pursued confidence by pursuing God himself in the midst of his fear and in the midst of his uh, men's fear. They were hiding in a forest. They were already afraid. And, and David, inquiring the Lord, found his confidence, not in his ability to gird his loins, suck it up, and be courageous. He found his confidence in a God who was greater than the Philistines. And David then led others towards God as his confidence, not towards David as their confidence. A scared king taking his scared men out to have confidence in the one who is worthy of their confidence. David and his men go out to Kela and they rout the Philistines. In fact, it was such a big rout, the Bible takes like two verses to say it. They, they won. Philistines were kicked out. And David plundered the Philistines. Inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines. They, they saved the town. Yay, there was much rejoicing. Saul was told, though, that David was at Kela. And Saul began his pursuit to David. He's going to kill him. So David, what does David do? He's afraid. Saul's on his way. What does David do? David inquires of the Lord. And, and so David, once again, in his fear, he goes to the Lord and says, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard that Saul plans to come here and destroy this town because of me and, and likewise destroy me. Two questions, God. Will the citizens of Kela surrender me to him? This is verse 11. And will Saul come down as your servant has heard? God, please tell me. Notice how Saul relies so heavily on his intelligence reports, and David just goes to the one who knows everything. The Lord said, he will. Saul is on his way. And David asked again, uh, you forgot question one, God. Will the citizens of Kela surrender me and my men to Saul? You remember the city we just saved? And what does God say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're going to turn you in. They're pretty trustworthy. So David and his men, about 600 now, it's growing. They ran away. They left. They abandoned the city. Once Saul learned that David and his men were no longer in the city, Saul broke off his pursuit and didn't go to that city any longer. David could have set up shop right there in that city. A walled city would have provided ample defense. 600 men probably would have been able to defend that city against a much larger force. But David doesn't operate on fear and needing to root out his enemies. He operates on God's purposes. And so David takes his men out to stay one step ahead of King Saul. And King Saul continues to work his intelligence reports, continues to gather information on where he is, David is. The people of Israel continue to turn David in over and over and over again. I almost, after reading chapter 23, say, why would David want to be king of these people? They turn him in over and over again. And David just stands one step ahead of, of, of Saul the whole time, relying on God to keep him safe. Psalm 54 was written during this time in David's life, and I think it's worth reading. 
It's not a very long psalm, so I'm going to read Psalm 54. This is what it says, For the director of music with stringed instruments, again, a mass skill of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? During this time, you can read it yourself in chapter 23, David was in the region of the Ziphites, and they had turned him in to Saul. Psalm 54 says this, Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Let me just stop there just for a second. We need to understand something about David's prayer. David's prayers are not prayers of rubbing the rabbit's foot. Prayers. Now, what's a rubbing the rabbit's foot prayer? That's something where I know what I got to do. I know I, I got to get this job done because, you know, I've decided it's the right thing to do. I better pray before I do it to kind of throw some God-blessing fairy dust onto that job I got to get done. David here is not praying a prayer, God, I know what I'm going to do. I, I want to make sure you're on board with it. David is saying, God, I need you to just take care of it. God, save me by your name. Because if David was going to use his intelligence and his skill and his training to save himself, he wouldn't have done anything that he did in chapter 23. He wouldn't have saved the city to begin with. Once he had saved it, he wouldn't have left the city. And there were numerous times during his flight from King Saul where he could have established a position on the, on the top of the hill that he was running from, which is the, the advantageous position to, to defend himself. But he just continued to run and flee from Saul, knowing God would take care of it. So this prayer comes from David's heart where he's saying, God, save me. Save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, God, destroy them. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Verses 6 and 7 are prophetic. He's praying this as though God's already going to handle it. God, I will look with triumph on my foes. Can't wait to see it. That's going to be awesome. I trust you to do it. I'm going to pray. It's done. David's prayer was not just that he would be able to run fast and be strategically smart. David's prayer was that God would just handle it. It's in your hands, God, now. It's not in mine. What does David do when he is afraid? David pursues confidence by pursuing God. First thing, three things that David did in this. Number one, as king... He understood his role as king was primarily to lead his people to God. And when his men needed confidence, and when he needed confidence, he didn't come up with the best plan he could come up with. He came up with a prayer meeting. And as a king, he understood that was his role. If I can get all these guys closer to God, I've done my job as king, because then if Saul wipes us out, we're still okay. 
His confidence was not in his military, military victory or his military strategy. His confidence was in his role as king, which was to get the people he was with as close to God as possible because of the covenant God had made with them. So when the Philistines invade one of the towns of Israel, David says, no, 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 no. God made a covenant with his people, and they were going to be at peace, and the enemies were going to be run away. This can't stand. I'm the king, I'm the keeper of the covenant, and I'm going to enforce that covenant. And so he goes and, and battles the Philistines and has victory. So David understood he, who he was as king was primarily to lead his people to God, not just to great victories. He also understood that he had to depend on God and not primarily his strategy. Most of the missions he went on in chapters 22 and 23 were missions that were foolhardy at best. Invade in a, a walled city. That's crazy. Once you've captured the city, run from it. That's kooky. Once you've captured the city and you, you're running from it, instead of finding a secure position, just keep running. This is crazy. All of the things he's doing requires him over and over again to just simply depend on the Lord. His confidence wasn't in his strategy or his intelligence as it was with King Saul. His confidence was in God himself. Finally, when David pursues confidence by pursuing God, he pursues obedience at personal cost. Where Saul exercised disobedience for personal gain, David, in pursuing confidence by pursuing God, pursued obedience at personal cost. He was giving up his security. He was giving up safety. He was giving up the sooner access to the throne. But his confidence wasn't in these things, and so he didn't need to pursue these things. And so he could pursue obedience at personal cost because his confidence was in the Lord. David would say this, who am I? I'm the king. I have a role appointed by God to serve the people by leading them to God and having them have their confidence in God. As king, what do I need to know and what do I need to believe? I need to know and believe that God knows more than I do. It says this in Isaiah 54. Maybe I've already read it, but I'm going to read it again anyway. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. As David is hunkered down in a cave just hoping Saul wasn't going to walk around the corner and kill him, he had to comfort himself and understand by a faith in the Lord, okay, God, what, your ways are better than my ways. And finally, he says, what do I do? I obey. I seek the Lord's ways the Lord's purposes, even at personal cost. David pursues confidence by pursuing God. Saul, he pursued confidence by pursuing his threats. Verse 26 of 1 Samuel 23, this is where the story ends for today. Running and running and running, Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain, hurrying to get away from Saul. 
That would have been an interesting thing to see. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Saul broke off his pursuit and went to meet the Philistines. And this is why the, the place, Selah uh, Hamalakoth, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Kept hiding, but God delivered him over and over and over again. Can you imagine running and running? They're almost here. They're right on it. We can, we can hear their, the, the footsteps. We can hear the, the sheaths of their swords uh, hitting the leather of their boots. And then all of a sudden, the enemy turns around and walks away. And all of their confidence in the Lord is bolstered and grown because they had trusted the Lord. What do you do when you're afraid? Jesus had something to say about fear as well in Matthew chapter 10. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, I'm going to read through verse 33. Jesus says this, Do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall onto the ground outside your father's care? And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before the others, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I'll disown before my Father in heaven. Don't be afraid of the things of this world. Have your, your fear properly placed. God is God. So we could ask this question. We know what Saul did when he was afraid. He pursued confidence by pursuing his threats. And we know what David did when he was afraid. He pursued confidence by pursuing God. What did Jesus do when he was afraid? I think it's a fair question, and some of you might argue with me and say, well, I, I don't think Jesus was afraid, and I would uh, agree that it's okay for you to be wrong about that. Matthew 26, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said, sit here while I go over here and pray. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And this is his prayer. Uh, my father, if it's possible, make this cup. Take this cup from me, yet not as you will, but, or I should say not as I will, but as you will. You want a second time, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he prayed in agony, and, and in Luke, he, the Bible tells us he prayed so intensely, blood was, was passing from his brow because of his, his sorrow and his anxiety of dying on the cross and receiving on himself the judgment of God for all of eternity. When Jesus was afraid, he, he pursued confidence by, by, by following the Father's will and pursuing us. 
When he was afraid, he didn't diverge from his plan to pursue you and me. He had confidence in the plan of God to redeem mankind through his sacrifice and his resurrection. He didn't abandon his identity as king and savior. He sought to lead us to God in covenant, just as the king should do. Remember King David leading all his men to God in the covenant of God. Jesus does the same thing. It's just in this case, this covenant is not the Mosaic covenant. The Bible tells us where is that covenant? It's in his blood. As our king, he leads us to God in covenant in his shed blood. Jesus depended on the Father and he trusted the Father in his perfect will to redeem mankind. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. I depend on you. I'm going to rest in you in this time as we together work together to redeem mankind to ourselves. And he obeyed at personal cost. He didn't have to be afraid because he understood who he was and he understood who the father was and he he understood what the plan was and, and he obeyed at personal cost. I want to read just a, a section of Revelation chapter 1 for you just very quickly. This is what Revelation chapter 1 beginning at verse 9 says. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient uh, endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the, on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, he wasn't on vacation. On the day of the Lord, I was in the Spirit... And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12, I turned around, and I saw the voice that was talking to me. I saw seven golden lampstands. I saw among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching to his feet, with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were blazing fire. His feet were bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held what? Seven stars. You know, just seven stars. I can't hold one. I know it's figurative. Okay, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So here's this one the Son of God, the Son of Man, who was praying in a a forest. If you would have walked by him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you would have had him a couple of bucks. And here is this one, who was bleeding out blood on our behalf, full of anxiety and fear, says, no, I will obey you, God. Saul rebelled. Listen, Saul rebelled to clutch to his throne. David trusted the Lord and was going to ascend to his throne. Jesus trusted the Father and descended off his throne. Worse than that, Jesus was the priest who was killed. Jesus came off his throne And unlike David, who because of his actions, a a bunch of priests were killed, Jesus was the king and the priest who bled out at the hands of his enemies, saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. I will obey you at personal cost. 
What do you do when you're afraid? Are you like Saul? I've got to figure out what my threats are and get rid of them. I've got to strategize. I could be the smartest person in the room. I've got to make sure I don't lose what I have. Or do we say, no, we have a king who's calling us to something greater. We have a king who walked that path for us. He walked it for us and said, no, you don't have to be afraid because you can rest in me. You can embrace who you are. You're a son and daughter of the king. I will, by the covenant in my blood, bring you into relationship with God himself. You're a son and daughter of the king himself. A royal priesthood we're described as. As a, as a royal priesthood, are we going to depend on our own intelligence and smarts to get ourselves out of a pickle? Or are we going to be uh, like the king who brought us into the presence of God and say, God, what would you have us do? God, save us. I will make God my stronghold. Do we obey when it is in our interests? Or is obedience primarily a means in which we experience the sacrifice that Christ experienced? What do you do when you're afraid? Let me just put not too fine a point on it. In chapters 22 and 23, at least four times, maybe five, depending on how you want to read one of the verses, it says, David sought the Lord. David sought the Lord. So maybe you want to think through what I might call your order of operations. Something bad happens. Tomorrow's Monday. That's a bad thing. Monday happens. What are your order of operations? Come up with a plan. Pray God blesses it. Right? I mean, that's pretty standard order of operations. I think maybe we want to flip that. God, help me. I got no plan. I got nothing. Show me the right way to go. God, you are my stronghold, not my brilliance. God, you are my stronghold, not my resources. God, you are my stronghold, not even my life. Help me to obey you in the midst of trial. What do we do when we're afraid? And oftentimes what we do when we're afraid simply illuminates who and what we trust.